Grow CFO is where finance leaders grow together. Join thousands of like-minded professionals using Grow CFO to access the combined knowledge and experience of the finance leader community. You can join us today at growcfo.net. Hello and welcome to the Grow CFO show. I'm your host Kevin Appleby and today I think I've got one of the best qualified guests we've ever had on the podcast. She is a graduate with an MBA from Duke and an MS in finance from Harvard. So Jana Land, welcome to the Grow CFO show. Thank you very much, Kevin. I'm honored to be here. Myself and my cat, as you can see here, her name is oh, Laura. brilliant. You've got a cat on the back of the sofa. I've got two dogs under the desk. It's very pet friendly, this podcast. So, Jana, you're currently CFO Transformation in L'Oreal, North America. But your journey started quite a while before then. So tell us something about you. Where do you come from originally? How did you get to be CFO Transformation at L'Oreal? Thank you for the question. It's uh, It's been a journey, let me tell you. I am originally from Transylvania, from Romania, and uh, I followed the American dream with $800 in my pocket. I was a teenager and I came to the US for school. I never went back. I've been here for quite a while. I've done my undergrad in IT. So when we talk about the CFO role, I like to call myself an atypical or, a, you know, not your regular CFO. I can speak computer, computer science, technology. And while that these kind of experiences may look like they're not truly on the CFO track, you will see in my background that every step I took, it's actually helping to make the CFO a little bit, you know, more knowledgeable, differentiated, but also, you know, that role that we see today as the right hand to the CEO. Brilliant. Brilliant. So. You arrived from Transylvania. Oh, look at my teeth. Uh, yes. I filed them. I was going to try to avoid the <laughs> comments. <laughs> but so you arrived from Transylvania in the USA, $800 in your pocket. How good was your and English? And a dream. And a dream. And a dream. And a dream. Yes. So how good was your English? You know, it was pretty good. Actually, uh, Romanians, are their school system, it's, it's wonderful. And yeah. by the time I came to the U.S., you know, I had like uh, eight years of German, six years of English, so four years of Latin, and four years of Arabic. So I was, my language skills were quite diversified and uh, developed to pick up a language quite quickly. So that was, that was an advantage. But even so, the culture must have been quite different. Oh, my God. Yes, it was. Anything from opening a can of soda, you know, that I have not done before because in Romania, we didn't have soda growing up, all the way to adjusting to the grades of A, B, C, D, E versus from 1 to 10 and going to school and, uh, you know, sitting in those big auditoriums versus the small classes that we had. And, uh, you know, all the etiquettes around, uh, you know, when you the professor entered the room in Romania, you stand up. In the US, I was the only one standing up. So <laughs> there are quite a few experiences that looking back are just gratifying right now, but scary at that time. Yeah. So you clearly progressed quickly and very successfully. So how did you end up in finance? It was a coincidence. From IT, you know, I realized I really like to go and spend more time in the business. I love the business side. But going through McKinsey and then to American Airlines, I got a 
exposure, you know, to different parts of the departments. I've seen marketing with McKinsey. I've seen sales with American Airlines. And then I met the CFO at American Airlines, who was a woman. She was from Russia, very inspiring, a petite woman, and among, you know, a board full of men. And it kind of inspired me, you know, that looking at her, wearing her black suit, beautiful short hair. So with so much confidence, I said, you know, I want to be like her one day. And it kind of resonated to my story. So confidence, there's, there's an interesting one. You, you strike me as a person that is full of confidence. Where does that confidence come from? You know, I wish I could say you're born with it, but you're not. I think the more you put yourself out of your comfort zone, the more you try to, you know, find out who you are, what you want, the stronger, you know, you try to feel the ground underneath your legs, the more confident you get. And when you put yourself in that, you know, out of your comfort zone location, it's when you realize that you could do more than you can even imagine. And you can be more than you can ever imagine. And everything is attainable. And for me, coming to the U.S., and being by myself and realizing that the sky is the opportunity, it gave me that confidence that everything is possible. When you really want to, you know, there's a saying that everything is possible, but everything else is excuses. Mm. So airline industry, and you've mm-hmm. taken on your first finance role. What was the very first role? It was very exciting because I was coming in as an MBA in the company and, uh, you know, the American Airlines was holding for their dear life not to go into bankruptcy. And the finance function was stirring, you know, the company and really trying to make it through this, you know, uh, tough times without filing for bankruptcy. So it was a very respected function. There were a lot of people that had a lot of experience in finance function and the MBAs were rotating in order to get exposure to different departments. So we were seeing kind of like this next stars, next talent of the company. And everyone there was there to help us succeed and teach us and prepare us for the next wave of leadership. So I can speak very, very highly of the American airline culture when it comes to this. So that culture clearly rubbed off on you, but mm-hmm. stay with American Airlines. You moved on. You mean I left the company? Yes. Yes, you know, and I need to say that you're the first one who pointed out that probably that culture rubbed off on me. You're so right. And later on, if we have time, we can talk about mentoring and developing people. One thing that you don't see in my resume is that I started a master's in psychology at Harvard. Because I believe as a leader, we have to understand the people. And our success is our teams and the people. So um, I'm happy you pointed that. You know, that is going to stay with me. But coming back to your question, the reason I left American Airlines, two reasons. Being the overachiever and being late 20s, I decided that in order to have my finance background even more enriched, you know, because I had an undergrad in IT at that point, an MBA from Duke. I would start a master in finance at Harvard, a full-time program flying to Harvard on American Airlines plane from Dallas every week at five in the morning, getting there, working from the airport till 5 p.m. in the Admirals Club. It was not that rough, the airport work. 
But anyway, I was working from the airport, then going to class five to seven, seven to nine, and then turning around next day on a 5 a.m. flight and going to the office. So I did that for a year and a half. And you can imagine it took a toll on me. I mean, it was it was really tough. Full-time job and full-time student in a master's degree at Harvard. And I would have not left. This is a year and a half into my journey. But then American Airlines announced that they are going into bankruptcy. And that's when I decided it's time for me, you know, to what I call pull the band-aid because it really hurt leaving American Airlines. I love the company. I loved every company I worked for, but that really formed me as a CFO. So I moved to Boston and uh, to finish my degree at Harvard. And that's when my next journey started at Novartis. That's quite a change, though, moving from the, the airline industry into a pharmaceutical company. Mm-hmm. That's a whole new industry to learn about. Completely. And even airline is really tough. I don't know if many people know about it, but when you talk about revenue, you talk about RASM, which is revenue per available seat. And chasm, it's cost. So when you join American Airlines or any airline, you start dividing all these numbers into your mind. You don't think of just cost per gram in a cost of goods. You think of cost per available seat, which is their chasm. So per mile, sorry, available seat per mile. So it's quite interesting. But then you're right. Novartis was a completely different industry, completely different. It's medical, which probably it's even harder to take in. Um, My CEO, for example, was, you know, a doctor by profession, and he was running the company. So for me as a CFO, I always say that I need to learn the business and know the business as well as my CEO. And that was one of the first times in my life when I know I was calling my mom, who has a medical degree, asking a lot of questions because it's really hard to keep up. Yeah. So you are in a, an FP&A role in Novartis. Yes. Yes. Correct. So how much FP&A experience did you have from American Airlines before you took that on? I had quite a few, as I said, at American Airlines, I spent, I took the PNL and I recommend this to every CFO, uh, or at least in the beginning of their journey to try to be or have experiences, work experiences in every part of the PNL. So if you think about it, it starts with sales. So at American Airlines, my first job was in sales strategy for Asia Pacific. The second job was in cost optimization. So this was everything below the sales, everything we put on aircrafts, including, you know, designing the interior of the aircraft, uh, seats, uh, tables, all the way to flight attendant costs and pilots and food and everything. So that was also super interesting experience because you look at cost optimization throughout your P&L. And then the last part of it was in capital planning. And American Airlines was a company that was investing heavily there. They had about a $2.5 billion budget, and they were buying and leasing aircrafts and building terminals and, and building actually also different admiral clubs. So it was a super rich experience, and that served me very well coming into Novartis. But suddenly you're, you're responsible for the five-year global strategic plan for vaccines and diagnostics. So capital planning to five-year global strategic plan, that sounds quite different to me. It was very different. So if you think about it, two things to put in perspective. One, it was a time where there was no pandemic. So from that perspective, vaccines and diagnostics as a division was not very profitable. And second was an industry that I didn't spend a day in. So 
thinking of working with doctors to sell the vaccines or with, uh, you know, uh, big organizations and hospitals to sell the diagnostics machines and trying to project that into the next five years was quite a challenge. You're right. It was completely different. Looking back, now that I have to put myself in that position, I remember the days that uh, was a lot of learning. Yeah. But as you say, one of the things you've done is put yourself outside your comfort zone. And that, that looks like correct. a great example of it. Yeah. So Novartis, though, only lasted two years. Mm-hmm. And you moved on to L'Oreal, another change in industry, pharmaceuticals yes. to cosmetics. So what happened there? So actually, two things happened. And I'm going to touch on both because I think it's important as, uh, you know, people that listen to this, especially on their journey to the CFO, to take note of this. So first thing that happened was I was in uh, this division that was not very profitable and we had to make a tough decision. And in life, you come to this point where you realize that it's probably better for Novartis to focus on the other parts of the company um such as you know oncology or consumer goods and let someone else take over vaccines and diagnostics that had much more a bigger portfolio there so we divested that part so i was on the team that divested and that was the first time that i went through such a change and such a people change because when it comes to divestiture it's not only about you know what the pnl says and how the pnl looks you know it's also about making sure that the change, you know, is communicated clearly and that people are prepared for it. And then the second thing that happened, I mean, after the division was sold, I recognized that I wanted to be in an industry where I can speak the business language as good as my CEO. And for me, my, Novartis or Pharma or any medical company, I, I would have, that would have meant to get an, a medical degree. And at that time, which is super interesting, I had a recruiter call me and he said, wow, I love your background. It's so diverse. But uh, he said, I have a really, really good opportunity for you in Europe. And he saw me on this amazing opportunity in Brussels and coming from Europe. I was very excited about it. And at the end, he said, our client is looking for operational experience. What do you have in the operation side? So that is a moment in my CFO career when I realized, you know, just managing the PNL and being in the PNL, it's not enough. Being more on the commercial side, I mean, you have to take a step and go into the operations. And uh, that got me to L'Oreal just to kind of complete your question. When L'Oreal called me and said, you know, we have a really good job. We talked to you before about L'Oreal, but this job is not what you probably would consider. And it's in the research and innovation. However, it's a really, really strong job. And it's over all America. So the moment they said operations, I said, I'm in. I'll take it. Yeah. I think that's something that I've seen in a a number of CFOs that I've spoken to is that a lot of the really successful CFOs we've had on the show have, have taken stints outside of finance they've gone into operational roles they've gone into it roles they've gone even gone into marketing and sales roles and having that diversity to understand the rest of the business has certainly been something that's that's been valuable so you take on cfo research and innovation so tell me about that what did you have to do in that particular role that stretched you 
So one good part was coming from Novartis, from medical, where it's a lot about research and it takes 20 years to take a drug to market, if you're lucky. Uh, going to the research innovation of L'Oreal was a little bit of a parallel, to be honest, because L'Oreal spends over a billion dollars in their research uh, yearly, and it's really scientific. So at least that was one ground that I didn't feel that was completely different. But the role in itself was super different. As my title said, I was in charge of all the cost side, uh, finance side of the lab expenditure. But into me, I also had the purchasing function reporting into the function, the legal patterns, business development, and, you know, the day-to-day expenditure of uh, the operations at uh, Research Innovation. So from that perspective, the role was very meaty and and very well positioned. While the title was still CFO, it was very much an operational role. You were very definitely, we we term in gross CFO as an operational CFO. Yeah, looking after a lot of finance. So what sort of challenges did that give you? You've now got a lot of people that haven't got a finance background reporting into you. So that had to be just a little different. I love the way you just find, you know, the best piece of the job and you ask me about it. That is so true. So my biggest fear walking into this role was, what am I going to talk to the legal department? Because I don't know anything about legal, you know, or patents. And the best advice that I got at that point, they are subject matter experts you are the leader, you set the strategy, you know, you work together with them to figure out what are the biggest challenges and opportunities. You design the roadmap with them, but you don't have to be a subject matter expert. And that's what set me up for success in the job. Yeah. Yeah. I always think back to a piece of advice I got from my father, who was a partner in a small firm of accountants in public practice. And He said, Kevin, never ask your staff to do anything you can't do yourself. And I've now come to realize that that's probably the worst piece of business advice that I've ever had. (laughs) That actually what you've got to be able to do is the exact opposite, is to be able to get your staff to do things that you haven't got a clue about, but still be able to manage them. I think think if if you're lucky, you have those, but also you have to have the expertise because I agree with your father. How would people respect you if you don't understand at least their job, right? So I think there's a bit of truth in there. There's understand and can do, and they they are Mm -hmm. different. Yes, Mm -hmm. I think that is true. Yes. So, how did you get to grips with, say, understanding the head of legal's job? Well, looking back, there are lots of discussions with the head of legal. Curious questions that you ask, admitting your lack of knowledge learning and reading everything that comes to your desk and asking for a lot of reading material. I think trying to be something you're not is probably the worst thing. Uh, People would sniff it. And as I like to say, there are sharks in the water when a new leader comes in, right? They smell blood. They're looking for your weaknesses. But I think if you can have the humbleness to say, this is my expertise, it's finance, right? Your expertise is legal. I'm here, you know, to learn as much as possible, to help the department of legal succeed, to set the vision together, to work on it together. I think that's that's how you need to approach these jobs where you're clearly out of your expert zone. Yeah. But let's skip forward a bit. 
because you moved on from being CFO Research and Innovation to being CFO of the Active Cosmetics Division. Okay, firstly in the US, but then in Shanghai. Now that's quite a leap. Tell me about that. So um, I spent three years in research and innovation, and the CFO of the Americas noticed me and came and said, you know, I have a really good opportunity for you. He's on the division side. There are four divisions at L'Oreal. The one that he's talking about is Active Cosmetics. Today actually was just renamed last week as Dermatological Division. So this is skincare that's developed to dermatologists. And I was very excited about the role. It was a small division at the time at L'Oreal USA, and it had four brands, and it was a perfect step from the operations into the business side. However, I accepted the job in December 2016, and in January 2017, L'Oreal announced the largest acquisition ever that they paid for, if I remember correctly, was $1.4 billion. And that was to acquire three new brands that would be integrated in my division. So I found myself into this, again, out of my comfort zone role, where I'm stepping into a division I don't know, but it's doubled overnight. I have to do an integration of three brands in a division that I don't know with a team that's not sized for the division because it's doubled overnight. And uh, quite a few friends at that time because that role, to be honest, was a really good role. And a lot of other people would have been much more qualified for it than me. Mm. So that sounds as though it's just given you a thousand and one different challenges. Correct. How did you cope? A lot of work, not giving up. You know, I think this is something that it's part of my my personality, who I am. I always think that's that's a way, you know, and a lot of mentors and, you know, sponsors, starting with my CFO, but as well the person that was in the job before, uh, several mentors in similar division, in corporate, and, you know, just making sure that I keep them close and, uh, you know, I listen to their advice. So it's very easy in this situation to talk about the big successes of doing something like this. Mm -hmm. What went wrong and what did you do about it? (laughs) That's a really good question. Probably many things went wrong, but at the end of the day, it's about risk management, right? And the reason I say probably is because it was a very challenging time. We had to do the integration within six months because we had a service agreement to finish it in six months. So this was also the fastest integration ever at L'Oreal. From that perspective, when you go that fast, it's impossible for things not to fall through the cracks. And, you know, one of the things that I remember was miscounting the units because the data was coming in Excel from the company that owned the three brands before the name is Valiant. And we would take it from Excel, massage it, and try to upload it in SAP. And throughout that process, units were miscounted and our cost per unit, which we didn't know anything about the cost per unit at the time, was misstated for half a year. So things like that went wrong. I think that's important to recognize them immediately. It's important to own up to them, right? It's not the fault of Excel. It's not the fault of the other company. It's literally our fault going too fast. But it doesn't mean that we couldn't adjust quickly and report correctly and and keep going. So I think it's important to recognize mistakes early, own them up, uh, you know, adjust, and then 
keep your eyes on the prize. That's a really big lesson because providing you do own up, you do do something about it fairly quickly. The learning that you can get out of things not going quite the way they should is huge. I think as finance people, we've got such a view of right and wrong that we've got a bigger fear of failure than we probably should have. I like that. Actually, that is so true. We are, I think, we humans, we people, right, are scared of failure. And we are scared more of the unknown. And at the end of the day, you know, there's, it says that 99% of the fears that we have or the problems that we create in our mind are not even real and they never happen. So just imagine we use every day probably 1% of our brain on what is actually happening and we actually can control. So it's actually a really good uh, point. And a huge amount of our brain worrying about things that never happened. <laughs> exactly, exactly. Yeah. How much energy is wasted, yeah. unfortunately, but that's, that's how we are wired. Yeah. So you've taken on this new role, you've got these new products coming in, the, the division doubled overnight, but then you end up in Shanghai. So tell me about the story of getting you to Shanghai. Yeah, so that's, that's a little bit more to this role, right? I was in it for four years. We braced COVID being in this role and yes. the division continued to grow at double digits and high double digits. Like it was amazing. And so I've been there for quite a bit, loved the role, but I was ready for an international experience. I was ready to experience a different part of L'Oreal. And I was talking to the group uh, sitting in Paris about what's next for me. And initially the idea was for me to go to Europe. And of course, I would have loved that because my family is still there. But with COVID, nothing was changing, right? Everyone was in the same place, in the same spot uh, in Europe, working remotely. There was no mobility changes in the company. And when I speak mobility changes, I mean people changing jobs. And Asia, because now the Asian consumer, right, is stuck in their country and they cannot travel and spend abroad. Because of that, Asia as a PNL was booming and uh, our sales were growing uh, really fast and uh, L'Oreal recognized this and said you know before Asia for us was a zone it's time to split it and be able to manage it even closer so they split Asia at that time during COVID in North Asia and South Asia so I was offered the North Asia CFO job uh, for the ACD cosmetics division and uh, that job was located in Shanghai. And that's how I ended up in the middle of COVID in China. Middle of COVID in China. I would have yes. thought going to China in the middle of COVID was just something that nobody did. Yes, that is something that you also learn as an experience. And let me bring it home. I learned not to make a decision, such a drastic de decision in the middle of COVID, relocated to a country you've never been to. And that has a quite of a totalitarian political and social regime. Yeah. So huge, huge culture change, possibly mm -hmm. bigger than the one that 18-year-old Jana had arriving from Transylvania in the USA. So That is correct. Yeah. So what did you learn in China? Many things. But just to touch on the, on the experience, because I think it's something that you pointed out very well, right? Why is the bigger change. I thought about it because I felt it as a bigger impact. And I think the reason was coming to the US, you know, the dream was, you know, a bigger opportunity, better country. 
coming versus Romania, which was still struggling to remove the communism era. Going to China, my idea was an amazing job, experiencing an amazing culture. But that could not happen during the time that I was there because COVID, you know, was at its peak in China and zero COVID policy. But and the government was getting tighter and tighter. So in reality, it reminded me of the communism that I ran away from. So from that perspective, you pointed out so true. It was a much more culture shock than coming to the U.S. So coming back to your question, what did I learn? Wow, there was so much. First, the digital sales and digital transformation in China. And that's a presentation that I did before was just phenomenal. I would say probably they are 20 to 30 years ahead of the rest of the world. And the sales that I was in charge of were for China and other countries, but it was about, uh, at that time, 75% of the sales were digital. So learning a completely new channel was one of the biggest experiences or learnings for the PNL that I was there. But also learning other countries. I had China, I had Japan, Korea, Hong Kong reporting into me as well. And the biggest challenge was not the cultural the fact that, you know, I don't know those countries as well, but also as a CFO that likes to be on the ground to see the business, to see the department stores that I said we are selling through, to see the pharmacies, to visit the doctors. None of that was possible because of COVID. So what served me so well before, you know, being close to the business and understanding the business, as well as my president, could not happen in this case. So for me, adapting to that kind of situation and trying to learn from videos and other other means was quite challenging. Mm, I can imagine, yes. So the China experience only lasted just over a year and you've ended up in July 2022 back in New York as CFO Transformation. I've never spoken to a CFO Transformation before somebody with that job title. What does a CFO transformation do? This is, um, as I was telling you a little bit earlier, this is a a new wave in the industry. There are actually quite a few of transformation offices created in the past three to four years in large companies. And the role of the office itself, and then we come to my role, is to sit at the center of the company and look at all the large investments across the company and say, are these first aligned with our vision of the company, five-year, 10-year, whatever you know, strategic plan that we set up for the company? Are they delivering the best value? Are in the right priority, the way we are executing them? And do we have the right resources aligned to deliver the project within the budget, time, you know, and with the KPIs or KVIs, which is key value indicators that were set up? That sounds absolutely fascinating. I love that idea. So that's, you're looking across not just the cosmetics division, not just the research division, you're looking across everything in the North Americas. Mm-hmm. That's correct. Yeah. So that means you must be learning about parts of the business that you've had no previous experience. Yes, that is correct. You look at everything and I'll tell you as a CFO, You have to take your finance hat off at times because when you look at the key value indicators or KPIs for a project, you cannot push always for finance metrics. 
for mm. example, an, an HR project, right? In my opinion, we should not have only finance metrics. There may be, we should not have some or any at all, right? Quite. Because it's about the people. Uh, when we do HR projects, it should be about the people. And a surprise factor that I found at times was that people misunderstood the idea of the key value metrics and they were trying to justify the project through value creation in the finance side, side which was mind-boggling for me. Yeah. Value, to me, definitely does not just have to have a dollar sign in front of it. Mm-hmm. Value is obviously putting more money on the bottom line or the top line of the business, but it's very much about the people and the resources that you have available to you and getting the most out of those things. It really is about maximizing your investment. If that means that you've got a group Mm -hmm. of people who you can take on a journey, you can improve, you can take them to their full potential. Well, you can't put a dollar sign on that. No, you cannot, but you invest money. So the idea till now, it was if we have an investment, we have to justify the dollar most of the time, you know, with the return on investment, which it's easy to sell a project when you show a dollar return on investment. But we are changing, right? Culturally, this is a big change for the company to say you have to think outside the box of selling a project and you have to talk about four KPIs in our case that uh, this project would deliver. And it may not be finance. It may not be financial finance KPIs. And I am actually pushing for that when I find myself in a project that my mind is thinking, why are they trying to justify this project with dollars? Because yes, it's important to the company, but there's much more that this project brings to the table than just money. Yeah, it's enabling things. It's capability. It's Correct. Lots of things like that. So this is a very, very new role, Joanna. So what have your big challenges been so far in trying to pick up that role in the first six months you know it's not the challenge is not in the capabilities of the role because being a cfo in so many areas of you know of so many functions in so many industries and i prided myself on being a cfo of the people like really understanding the business and being there in the trenches with the people i think it's for me the role in itself is not hard what it is very challenging and what probably every company finds challenging is actually taking all the data that is there, all the projects, right, that till now have been tracked in Excel spreadsheets in all departments. There's no, you know, database that captures all the information today. And there are several tools out there, but they are quite in the beginning stage. And the one that uh, we use is actually an IT tool because IT is so known for executing a lot of large projects. But with the lack of knowledge that is centralized, with the lack of tools that doesn't that don't exist or they are not as developed as we would like, the job becomes tougher in the idea of tracking the value, in the idea of centralizing all the knowledge. So that's where the job is more complicated, setting up the department, if you will. Yeah, now if it was me in that role, I think it's all those things that don't exist that would make it fun. <laughs> Uh, exactly that i think that's the challenge all the things that don't exist yeah brilliant so that has been absolutely fascinating if just summing up if you were to go back and give one piece of advice to a younger version of yourself what would it be 
that's a good question. I would say take any opportunity that comes in front of you. Don't be afraid of it. It will differentiate you. I mean, of course, think through it, but don't be afraid to, you know, take a lateral or consider opportunities that are outside of the CFO track if you want to be on the CFO track or outside your métier. The word métier is a French word for, you know, craftsmanship because those opportunities will differentiate you and will set you up on a journey of understanding the business better than your peers. And all that will come together, you know, so well in your background at the end of the day. That is a fantastic piece of advice. Joanna, thank you for being this week's guest on the Grow CFO Show. Thank you so much. It was my first podcast. I'm very honoured. I'm very excited. And I'm looking forward to talking to you in the future and uh, meeting you at several conferences that I plan on attending.